Hello, welcome to the Suffolk Money Podcast supported by Kingsley Wealth. Well, today is a little bit different. We're going to look back at some of the wonderful people that we met during 2021. I find it hard to believe that we've already produced almost 40 recordings. And remember that if you go to our website at www.suffolkmoney.co.uk, you can find every single one of them there under the podcast section. Or you can go to the podcast provider of your choice, such as Apple, Spotify, Amazon, so on, and you'll find them there as well. One of the key reasons for doing this is to showcase some of the wonderful charities and community groups that we have in Suffolk. And that's what we did in our very first podcast featuring the amazing work of Cancer Campaign in Suffolk. Its Chief Executive Karen Hare told me more about its history. We're just coming into our 22nd year and it was set up when Jason Cundy, Ipswich Town footballer at the time, uh, was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And his oncologist was uh, the senior oncologist of Ipswich Hospital, a gentleman called John LeVay. And uh, John and Jason were in those days the great and the good of Suffolk, so therefore were always um, being chivied along to put their hand in their pocket. Um, And they found that the money that they were given very rarely came back into Suffolk. Mm -hmm. Um, And John wanted to make sure that he had a charity that actually wasn't part of the NHS, but was actually very much part of the community. And so him and Jason got together and they formed a charity, Cancer Campaign in Suffolk. And Jason was very greedy for information when he was diagnosed. Now, not everybody is, but Jason found it really difficult in those days to actually get information. So they decided the best thing that they could do was to actually build an information centre that was as close to the oncology department at Ipswich Hospital as they could. And... uh, the John LeVay Cancer uh, Information Centre was born. Um, It took four years to raise £500,000 to actually build the information centre, but it was also a place where we could actually give complementary therapy and counselling, and also somewhere where people could actually go and get information. Well, as time's gone on, these things change, as we would expect them to, and one of the biggest changes is that now information is mandatory. Does that mean Suffolk was ahead of the curve there in the sense of making sure people were informing people? Yeah, definitely, without a doubt. Um, And there are now information centres all over the country, not by cancer campaign in Suffolk. We are very much an independent one. And it's usually from one of the national charities that do the information centres throughout the country. We were definitely the forerunner. And the information centre has, I would think, probably between five and 7,000 visitors um, annually. Um, we do complementary therapy from there, we do counselling from there. And these are things that are not provided by the NHS. Although we're in an NHS building, and perhaps people forget that it's actually done by a local independent charity that provide and finance it. Um, and we work with other partners to be actually be able to, to, to do it. We've been working with a hospital now for in excess of 17 years. Um, and that in itself for such a small charity as we are, um, can be challenging. So John LeVay and Jason were really visionaries uh, and it fulfilled a need. The, the need has obviously changed, as I said, as time goes on. So that was the charity, that was what they, they did. And without the help of Suffolk, that information centre would not be there today. Then I was brought into the charity very sadly after John LeVay died. Um, and that was some little years ago. Um, <laughs> 13 years ago. Okay, 13 um, years, yeah. And I was brought in when John died, so I never met the man. So taking over a man's legacy is mm. really challenging in some ways, but the one thing that John wanted to do was actually to give information. So on the back of that giving information, um, we've developed an educational project, and the educational project is, for me, what I feel that we should actually be getting the message out into the community. We all need to understand what our body looks like today so that should there be something that goes amiss by tomorrow, we can actually stand in front of the mirror and say, that doesn't seem right, to actually go to see our GP. The message is a very simple one. The first thing is you've got to understand what your body looks like now. So that's Karen Hare, the Chief Executive of Cancer Campaign in Suffolk.
These podcasts have focused heavily on business, both big and small, and entrepreneurs based here, right here in Suffolk. And what a joy it was to chat to Milo Williams. It seems like a long time ago since I spoke to Milo, but a refreshingly humble young man who's built up a highly successful firm called Rubix M&E, which specialises in recruitment for mechanical, electrical and engineering jobs. So what's the secret of his success? You know, a lot of people have this... um sort of perception of recruitment that you know you can be super strategic and I get that yeah you know I can I can plan I can do all of that I can give my guys a plan but I just don't think anything beats hard work I know if I'm up at half five six a.m and I'm sat there till 10 p.m very few people are going to be doing that I remember reading um, Mike Tyson's autobiography and he, he went out like three four a.m running because he knew that anyone else in the whole world that he was competing with they weren't out running at that time and stuff like that just sort of sticks in my head and I think well okay well that's what you've got to do that's what you've got to do um and yeah it hasn't failed for me yet um in, in our office you walk in it's um hard work beats talent every time and if you touch enough bases speak to enough people then you, you will get there and you've got to remain positive throughout that because you you know you're getting three four five times as many no's as the average person as well so that sounds to me as though the hard work also encapsulates not not giving up when you're first turned back. Um, so, you know, keep revisiting, keep approaching, keep pushing, um, which sounds to me as though that's been very much part of your story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the key thing is actually adding value. It's a very tough industry recruitment. Um, you know, there's many sectors out there which requires totally different sort of skill sets to each sector and ours is certainly one where you need to be working a lot harder than the the, the rest to really get anywhere and that's the that's the only way I know to be successful um even though sort of you know we're still a long way from being where we want to be but I think we've got to where we have just based on just pure hard work and hard graft and you know when the door opens and you get that opportunity you've got to make the most of it and make sure you can do what you say you're going to do and, and as the business has grown, are you still part of the sales team or have you gradually retreated from that and let others take on that aspect or is it still in your blood? Yeah, no, actually I'm in every day. Um, so yeah, I haven't um, moved away from that at all. You know, I don't actually enjoy sitting on the sidelines. I like to be, I like to be amongst it and help people. I think that's the one of my new traits that I actually in, enjoy more than anything now is that I don't actually enjoy my name being on top there. March, for example, in sort of our sales standards, everyone's doing exceptionally well. And there's not one person who we're in inverted carriers having to carry. And sometimes in, in a sales environment, that's fine to do so. But it's a brilliant feeling for me. And it should be for them as well, that they're all achieving what they say they want to achieve. So that's, that's, that's my buzz is now to, you know, support them. And I do that in terms of going out there, getting the business, account managing it and assisting them to actually make the deal as well. So my role has changed, um, but yeah, I'm still in on a day-to-day basis and I certainly wouldn't be sitting on the sidelines. It's just, yeah, it would be a bit boring for me. to. It, it sounds to me as though this is still seven days a week for you. Do you have any downtime? <laughs> no. So that's Milo Williams, and I'm sure you'll agree, very humble and very honest. So from one highly successful business to another, Beach Street in Felixstowe is home to a number of independent shops, boutiques, artisan producers, street food, cafes, and so much more, all housed, would you believe it, in old shipping containers. But may I say, given a new lease of life and a decent lick of paint so they look absolutely amazing. It's been created by the Manning family which many people will know from the Felixstowe area and last June and I have to say it was a wonderfully warm day, a beautiful afternoon by the seaside, I popped along for the official launch and met with Charlie Manning and first one of the traders Sue who's developed her business called Susie Sparkle. Basically, you know, I started with a six foot table of vintage jewellery four years ago. 
and I've progressed since then. You know, I introduced clothes and didn't look back and and uh, done markets and fairs and things. So you're a bit limited with space. Um, and, you know, it, it's taken me a while to build the business up. It's finally worked. You know, after all my hard work of standing in the cold and rain, you know, shivering, etc. Um, but as soon as Beach Street was, was being like, oh, you know, it's on the horizon, I'm like, I'm having some of that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, this feels good. You know, and it did. It felt a good vibe, and I'm so glad I'm here, and I do not regret it at all. Um, and so I can expand now, you know. And I've got bags, you know, artist bags. So you know, no, no one else sells those. Sells those put me teeth in, um, <laughs> you know. And dog scarves have been absolutely, you know, brilliant because there's a lot of dog lovers um, down here, um, you know, and they all like. Oh, scarves! Yeah, so, they're yeah. lovely. And, and sorry, just just at weekends, I have um, various readers that come in, like clairvoyants or numerologists, um, you know, and they do tarot readings. So, you know, it's that's a, to me that's a seaside resort. When I grew up in Felixstowe as a kid, you had two, you know, fortune tellers, you know, along the prom, and you know, I absolutely love it. And um, this is, you know, my dream and it's mine. <laughs> oh, it's, it is lovely. It's so nice. And I think that's one of the beautiful things to see along here is that this is, you know, just an extension of people's personality and they're, the thing they're enthusiastic about. And that's really apparent with you as well. Very, very passionate about Susie Sparkle, and I probably get on people's nerves, but I don't care. You know, this is my livelihood, and you know, who doesn't love a bit of sparkle? You know, I do. The site was founded by Billy Butlin in the 30s, um, and it was operated as the entertainment building and area for the holiday camps and holiday sites. Um, my granddad then took it over in 1946. Um, and it stayed in the family since, going down to my dad, Charles Manning Jr., and then now myself, my brother, my mum, the co-owners and sort of directors of the company. Um, so it's been in the family for over 76 years now. So tell us a little bit about Beach Street, which is obviously what I've come here to see today. So I've already just met some of the vendors, some of the, the shop owners, but how did the idea come to you? What, what, what led to its development? Yeah, well, there's, there's kind of lots of different facets to the business of Manning's. Um, and we've always looked at different areas and how they're performing, what the sort of performances of different sort of zones would be at the arcade, the market, the rentals, the rides. And over time, the rides have kind of dwindled down and there was very little demand and very little sort of revenue coming from it. So we decided we'd look at other options of how to use this, that part of the land more, um, more efficiently and more pr productively. Um, looking around the country, there's the box park, um, Container developments were sort of quite quite a popular new thing and very trending. It just seemed to fit really well with Felixstowe and it could create a mini economy on the seafront in its own right. So there's lots of small units, startups, affordable sort of spaces, affordable sizes, and it's kind of developed from there and it's been so well received with demand for the units and as well demand for visitors to come and have a look and see what's going on. So it's, it's just hit the nail on the head and just been very, very popular. And that was Charlie Manning on the success of Beach Street in Felixstowe, which has really been drawing in the crowds over these last few months and prior to that, Susie as well. So many of the people that we talk to, like Charlie, have seen an opportunity and just decided to grasp it with both hands, and none more so than the remarkable Jason Salisbury. Jason already runs a successful dairy business called Suffolk Farmhouse Cheeses at Creating. And if I might just add here, if you haven't visited, you really, really should. But then came that opportunity for him and his wife Catherine to use their incredible expertise to create a dairy herd on Sark, the smallest of the main Channel Islands. So how did it all come about? Trustee from Cambridge came over and had a, had a look and, and basically he was with us for about 10 hours and he said look if you could <laughs> pick the Suffolk farm up I'd bring it to Suffolk, that'd be ideal. 
So I said, well, yeah, but we can't really do that. One, the price of electricity is astronomically high here. We couldn't have a robot. We couldn't do this, that, and the other. And he said, oh, well, maybe we could build something. Maybe we could put some money together and build a dairy. Maybe we could do something. So I thought, well, okay. Um, but he said, you are the dynamic couple. You're the couple which we need. Because obviously Catherine is, is the vet as well. So he said, You're, you both process milk, you're a husband, she's a vet, the island hasn't got a vet, so let's, let's get you over. So he said, all you've got to do is bring your cows. I said, well, that's fine. He said, I've got excess cows, so I can bring those, that's not a problem. Then as time went on, we came to realise that actually we couldn't bring cows from the UK into the bailiwick of Guernsey. So we had to sell some cows in order to buy some cows from Guernsey here. And it's been those sort of... Um, trials and tribulations we've, we've had for the last three years. So and, it all um, seems so easy on paper, but actually there are some complications that no one has thought about. Huge. Logistics is the main one. Um, yeah, getting things from the UK to Guernsey is relatively straightforward. You take um, pallet loads or people will take pallet loads to pool. They get it onto the onto the cargo ship. Cargo ship comes over the English Channel twice a week. Unload it, stick it onto the quay for Sark shipping. Sark shipping picks it up and takes it to Sark. Except, as soon as Sark shipping gets hold of it, the price doubles. So instead of it costing three hundred and fifty pounds to get to Guernsey, it costs me seven hundred pounds to get to Sark from Guernsey to Sark. And then it gets craned off, so I've got a craneage fee. Then it goes on to a tractor and trailer, so I've then got a carter's fee of about another 60 quid. So all of a sudden, it gets very, very, very expensive. But everything is expensive here. Electricity, 58 pence a kilowatt. So everything is, is solar or renewable or heat source. So, Jeff, for those who don't know, and I'm sure many people don't know, tell us a bit about the island of Sark, its size, its population, its proximity okay. to the other Channel Islands. So, if you look at um, look at the bay in um, look, look for France, and then look to the sort of the bottom end of France, but just near the top, sort of Normandy way, you'll see a dish, and inside that dish are the Channel Islands. So, you've got Guernsey to start with, and then you, as you look at the map towards the right, you've got Albany. And then you've got Herm just below Guernsey. And then just below Herm, you've got Sark, and then you've got Jersey. So we're about 12 to 15 miles south of Guernsey. And it's three and a half miles long and one and a half miles wide. We have no street lights. So it's the world's first dark sky island. And when I say it's dark at night, it's immensely dark. You can't see your hand in front of the face. It's that dark. There are no cars, there are no, there's no um, roads, it's just a dirt, a dirt track and there's about 500 people live here but because it's so tranquil we get in the region between 50 and 60,000 tourists a year will come up for a look around the gardens, go for a tranquil walk, go on a horse and carriage ride and go and eat in fabulous restaurants. So do people come for a day visit from one of the other Channel Islands or do yeah. they come and stay for a period of time? The only way you could get here is by um, flying into Guernsey or getting to Guernsey by boat if you're from the UK. We, so we do get people from Guernsey will come over um, for the day. But there are four hotels here and a number of guest houses as well so people can stay. Um, but but they, there's, no, there's no landing strip or no... Um, no flights or anything. In fact, anybody coming over is not allowed to fly under two and a half thousand feet. So it's um, there's a no fly zone around the island as well. There's no drones either. So it's um, it's quite a very tranquil island. In fact, if I look across to my left out the window, I've got the Isles of, um, of Herm over there with Shell Beach and the sun's. It's actually really warm today. We're about 22 degrees today. So it's 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 a lovely day today. Oh, an incredible picture of uh, the new life on the island of Sark for Jason and Catherine Salisbury. So staying with animals, this time the mammals who frequently get washed up on our coastline and need help. 
Joe Collins, who's based in Ipswich, is the area coordinator in Suffolk and Norfolk for the group called the British Divers Marine Life Rescue. When we chatted, Joe explained a little more about the amazing work that they do. We're basically trained to rescue a seal, uh, to refloat a whale and to uh, refloat a dolphin. Um, that includes mainly cetaceans, so it's any whales that we may come across, dolphins, harbour porpoises, which are more prevalent in the area, don't tend to see whales and dolphins, unfortunately, um, unless they may be uh, washed up dead on the beaches, especially at Felixstowe with the shipping being so busy. Um, we can get involved a little bit with seabirds, but we won't say no. If we can't help, we'll try and find someone who can. We, because we know so many people now, we can sort of pass it on to someone who might be able to help if we can't. But it is mainly cetaceans and seals. We are a charity and we only have, I think it's three, maybe four members of paid staff. The rest are all volunteers. Mm -hmm. uh, so it started off with the, with the trustees and gradually encouraging people to train as medics and it's got stronger and stronger. And now I think we've got about 3,000 trained medics around the country. So when you refer to a trained medic, what's what's a trained medic? <laughs> what's involved? Um, I don't know what they how they started it because I wasn't involved at the very beginning. I've only been doing it since 2012. Um, but what I am in, responsible for as a coordinator for the area is to train medics to rescue a whale, a dolphin and seal. We used to do it with uh, lectures, three different lectures. It's uh, biology, then it's first aid, and a little bit of health and safety, that sort of thing. But now it is all done online for the lectures. And then we have a whole day of practical training on the beach. We can do it in the winter, but we tend to do that with dry models. In the summer, we have whales that are models that we fill with water, which can be up to a couple of tonne of water. So it's mm. equivalent to a life-size whale. And with the dolphin, we fill that with water as well, about 700 kilos there. And mm. So you have a real idea of what you're going to be doing because it's quite a dangerous thing to do, especially mm. a big whale. Uh, so yeah, we have to do that. We used to just spend the afternoon doing it, lectures in the morning and, and the practical in the afternoon, but now we have the whole day to go through it really thoroughly with the three models. And we have the little seal model full of water as well. So it's the sort of weight you would pick up a seal at. Mm. We only really deal with pups. The, the adult seals, you've probably seen them, are really big and aggressive and really difficult to manage. And they don't tend to have the difficulties that we have other than being netted or, or getting entangled. Joe Collins there from the British Divers Marine Life Rescue. So you're listening to a special podcast from Suffolk Money supported by Kingsfleet Wealth as we look back on some of the fascinating guests that we've met in the course of the last 12 months. So we're looking back at some of the highlights, some of the amazing conversations that we had during 2021. Next, who fancies a tipple? More precisely, a tiny tipple. Karen Reese just can't get enough of them as she runs the tiny tipple company based at Blunderston in North Suffolk. And she uses fruit, berries and blooms from hedgerows, her allotment and other local growers to produce a range of spirits and liqueurs. And one reason for its success, she says, is the unwavering support of friends and family. My husband does get a bit of an ear bashing at the dinner table <laughs> on the evening. <laughs> if I'm saying to him, can you just look at this on, on the laptop? He said, I've been sitting and looking at a computer all day. I really don't want to sit here in the evening looking at a computer anymore. But no, they've, they've all been brilliant and they completely understand everything what's happened. You know, they can see how much the company means to me and how I really want to push forward with it now, you know. A lot of companies don't survive the first five years and we're now in our sixth year of trade. And so I think everything what, what has happened in the past couple of years, you know, I sh we should be really proud of ourselves. I, mean, I know mm. a lot of small business have, haven't survived. Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, bearing in mind that one of the reasons why you set the business up was the whole work-life balance situation. Um, as you say, children at school and and so on how, how do you view that now now that you've got more responsibility and having to make all the decisions is it still working yeah and I think um I used to sort of get a bit of fear of missing out before I'd go to an event talk to a friend on another stall and they'd say to me oh are you doing such and such event next week and I'd panic a bit thinking 
no, I'm not. Should I be doing that? What? You know, well, I'm not. I'm not doing that. Why am I not doing that? Whereas no, I'm not sort of grabbing. Going to try and grab every event. I, you know, I've I've just done sort of four five weekends in a row working. So I've done about four or five weeks of seven days a week working, and I've got a few weekends off now. Whereas I, I could fill them with events, but I've got two massive events in November, so I just need to focus on those and prepare myself for those. Um, so yeah, it is, you know, I, I do want to push the business ahead. I do want to think of some new flavors, um, but I'm, I'm quite happy now with everything. I'm really, really lucky. I've got a brilliant work-life balance. I can bike to work or walk to work, be here when my children get home, um, you know, and work when I, when I want to work or when I have to work. So I guess perhaps got to work a little bit harder, but that's absolutely fine. So I've had some really good you know some nice sort of comments from the from the customers as well so and that that makes it all worthwhile how, how else would you sum up the the purpose of the business because it seems as though you've got some very clear objectives about what you're working with and and whom yeah i don't want to i don't want to go down the supermarket route really I, um i just you know I've, i'm quite proud of the fact that i'm not in a supermarket i've had to, spoken to friends who run businesses who were in supermarkets and they just get pummeled down on the price and it's just not worthwhile I don't really want to have that conversation I don't want to have to like go down the sort of factory route you know I don't want to have to buy in slows or buy in you know strawberries from abroad because I'm too busy to pick them or grow them or source them locally I, I want to keep to my ethos of only using locally sourced produce and I think if I did grow the business more, I think I, I wouldn't be able to um, keep with that ethos. So mm. to be keeping small ticking over, speaking to my lovely customers at events and the stockists, you know, that, that I love doing that. So if, if it got so big, I wouldn't probably be doing all of that. I'd probably give it to someone else to do <laughs> yeah. so well, why does the why does the local thing matter so much to you it, it clearly does I think it's because there's a, there's a number of reasons firstly we're just the, the part of the world we live in we're so lucky to have all the lovely hedgerow fruits and you know I've got, I can walk to my allotment um and you know just making use of all the beautiful Sort of fruits and berries and blooms that mother nature gives us uh, another reason is because i tasted quite a few i don't know slow gins or rhubarb gin and you sort of think has that slow gin ever seen a slow has that rhubarb gin ever been near a piece of rhubarb <laughs> it doesn't taste like the fruit it's supposed to taste like so i wanted to make sure that we use you know, proper real fruit not essence of not an artificial flavor you know proper real fruit and all the colours in the bottles as well. They, there's, there's no colours I put in. That is just the colour from the fruit. So, you know, I, I make a wild plum, which is a beautiful, almost it's like a Lucasade orange colour. Yeah. And it's absolutely gorgeous. And that is from that fruit. It's not anything other than colours from that fruit. So I don't use any preservatives or artificial colours or flavours. That everything is just from that fruit. That was Karen Rees, who's uh, savouring the sweet taste of success with the Tiny Tipple Company. One of the great joys about these conversations is that you just never know what's coming. Take Azuz El Marawi, who, with his wife Rebecca, created Coffee Link, which is based in Ipswich. Now, that was back in 2005, and there's now a string of cafes and shops providing work for around 100 people with thousands of customers around East Anglia. But it was while Azuz was talking to me about the lengths that they go to in sourcing their coffee that he mentioned a rather close shave when he was ambushed at gunpoint in Ethiopia, along with his colleague, Gary. I remember asking Gary as uh, we held our hands up, Gary, what do you think is going on? And I remember him saying to me, stay calm, Azuz, just stay calm. And I remember, I remember feeling really actually more reassured. <laughs> the lengths you go to to check out coffee <laughs> yeah and, and, and it was really quite an, uh, uh, an amazing experience i mean we were blessed to get away with it because um uh, as i said it was very scary to say the least uh, i remember the farmer said um something oh let me take you out of the village 
Uh, and we said, no, we're fine. You know, we didn't really think much of everything was fine. We were still in paradise, so to speak. Um, and the scenery was amazing. Uh, 2,400 meters, meters above sea level, beautiful elevation. Um, and uh, as we drove out of the village, um, we went from, as I said, sort of paradise into hell, really, because the screeching no noise of the brakes and suddenly everyone stopped translating and we were ordered to leave uh, the, the, the vehicle. Um, so there was the driver, Gary Battelle in the front. I was sitting behind Gary Battelle and Michael and Eden next to me, the Ethiopian um, uh, um, coffee exporters and buyers that we deal with. They left on the uh, left-hand side, we left on the right-hand side, and we, we were just ordered to... Uh, just ordered to, what, get out of the car? Yeah, like, yeah, essentially. Exactly. yeah. There was, everything stopped, literally, and, and uh, time froze for, for a few seconds, and the rush of thought in our minds, uh, I certainly felt that um, it was... Uh, it's, it's, uh, none of us really predicted it, to be honest with you. So uh, we just complied and kept saying, okay, okay, and I uh, asked Gary again, uh, what do you think is going on what's what's happening and he calmly said stay calm and just stay calm and he i could remember clearly him Gary removing his earpiece of his ipod and uh, putting it on his seat um and um by the time the, the guy uh, pointing the gun at us realized that we are complying he lowered his gun just to discharge it a few centimeters away from his foot and that really brought it home to me. I thought, well, this is it. We, we're going to die today. This is it. Um, and uh, within seconds, uh, obviously, the guys who were in charge on the left-hand side, who were uh, you know, interacting with uh, our Ethiopian friends, um, just they switched. Suddenly, there was a, a young lady, a young girl, um, holding us up again. And I kept saying the same thing to her. OK, OK, OK. So it, it was really scary. and. Um, uh, then um, obviously the guys on the left hand side didn't like the gun discharging because the army was not too far away. So right. Want any interaction, but he wanted to know: uh, uh, Do we call the army? Do we work with the government? So those are the two main things he wanted to establish. They were not after money or taking. They did take our funds for a little while to uh, check them over, but um, other than that, uh, it was just a matter of. Uh, complying and getting to know what you want. Then suddenly, obviously, the farmer uh, who offered to take us out of the village, because remember, the, his farm is, so to speak, in the, in the forest. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's quite a very, very rural um, environment. Uh, so he showed us uh, behind us. He knew what was going on. He stopped the car in the distance, walked for a bit. One of those uh, uh, um, uh, rebels uh, um, uh, walked to him. They went into a bush, had a chat, literally, came out and then uh, literally someone said i think we're going to be okay so um we got back in the car and i was thinking we we're going to drive off and everything would be fine he said no 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 we have to turn around and go back to the uh, village to meet the uh, rebel leaders and then probably that must have been the longest um, period to contemplate and think uh, about things and even consider running a <laughs> making a run for it you know? mm -hmm. and then you immediately instinctively say to yourself don't be silly there's nowhere to run <laughs> yeah where would you go to yeah, yeah, exactly it's a huge, it's a huge um, forest wow. and, uh, even if you get away from uh, the, the the rebel leaders you know your you, uh, wildlife will get you um so that must have been uh, really quite long five minutes uh, uh, maybe not even five minutes but it felt uh, like a long period of time driving we must have been doing five to ten miles an hour, total silence of the vehicle. Then we got to the village, sort of green, really. It was just on the side of the road. And suddenly there was a throng of people. And I thought, wow, where did they come from? They were not here earlier. Right. And, and uh, so they were observing us, obviously. And uh, so um, the, 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 the farmer then, uh, who was ahead, um, so went and greeted the uh, rebel leaders, spoke to them, and, and, and uh, took a few minutes, and then came to the vehicle. And Gary and I remember sheepishly putting the window down. And then they just shook our hands and apologized and said, you know, I'm sorry, you can go. But I, I, I um, we didn't really think um, much of it in terms of its significance. But when I came back, and even recently, I started realizing, my God, you know, we, we were really lucky and blessed to be yeah. with it because um, 
and the more I learned uh, subsequently about the area and, and the, 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 the local dynamics of uh, um, the, the strides, the challenges, the economy, the politics of it, the more I thought, wow, that could have gone seriously wrong um, because mm. had that gun been discharged uh, a few seconds earlier, it would have got me. And if he had got me, none of us would have left because they wouldn't let anyone go. Um, mm. So we, we were lucky, and um, it just made me really um, a appreciate the how lucky we are, and uh, to to have gotten away with it, and b to realize that those farmers really genuinely need our support. That's Azuz Al Marawi, the creator of Coffee Link, recalling that ambush in Ethiopia, and. If you wondered why one of the blends they produce is called Ambush Coffee, that's it. Although I must add, Azuz is always very careful to point out that he was incredibly well looked after by everybody in the area. Another charity which plays a critical role in Suffolk is the St Elizabeth Hospice, based in Ipswich. Judy Newman is its chief executive, and Judy joined us last September to explain more about its work and why we shouldn't be afraid to talk openly about death and grief. There is still a reluctance. Um, you, you may have heard us talk about the compassionate communities work um, that's really starting to grow uh, across the country, really, but that's to encourage everybody to build their confidence to support their own network of friends, families, colleagues, um, right from the point of a diagnosis and having those conversations and not, not being too embarrassed um, I think we still suffer from that um, tendency that if you don't know what to say, you say nothing, mm. um, which people can find very difficult. But effectively, um, one of the things that hospices are very involved in is trying to encourage people to have those conversations earlier. So, you know, for, for us, we should be having those conversations now. We should be having those conversations with our families um, all the way through to well, actually, I would much rather be um, cremated than buried or that really like, you know, get get those sorts of conversations mm. normalized. Um, actually, I would really like to die at home, for example. Mm. It's much easier to have that hypothetical conversation <laughs> ahead of time. And it's not to say that you're, you won't change your mind, but it's just useful for your friends and family to, to know those sorts of preferences. Um, the, the thing during the pandemic, we saw this enormous outpouring, didn't we, of people getting involved with food parcels, doing errands for their neighbours who were shielding absolutely wonderful outpouring of community support. But for me, the interesting question was, if that neighbour that you don't know very well is actually experiencing a bereavement and really struggling because they haven't been able to have the network of their friends and family, they perhaps had a very, very small funeral, for example, if they're struggling with their grief, how confident are you as they're able to do more than the food parcel and the food shopping? How comfortable are you to sit with your neighbour and have that conversation? And that's not a criticism. I think it is something that we all need to take a breath um, and, and learn how to have those conversations. So we are um, very keen to help as a hospice um, and encourage people to, to build that confidence. And, mm. and not just think, oh, that's that's too much. I, I can't do that. I think we all need to, to get better at it, really. Yeah, strangely enough, only recently I was hearing someone talk who uh, had lost his, his wife and had young children at the time. And he was talking about this very situation of people. He said, whatever you say, you can't say anything wrong because it's just addressing the subject and not being afraid to, to do that is the right thing to do. The worst thing to do is just ignore it and just pretend it isn't there. So it is, but there is some training, I think, for all of us or awareness of, you know, just being prepared to listen. It's not what we can say. It's often what we hear that makes the most difference yes. in that situation. And so if you see something around compassionate communities, increasingly that's being spoken about, that that's really something to watch out for and just see how you can get involved. For example, there's some compassionate cafes, there's some compassionate conversation training. There's um, So for example, we've got a fantastic voluntary sector, haven't we, in the sector? You and I know that there's some wonderful grassroots groups out there and talking to them, and they might have a brilliant set of volunteers who are brilliant at doing what they're doing, say they're doing lunch clubs, they're, whatever they're doing. But if one of the people that they're working with has either got a diagnosis of life limiting illness or going through a bereavement experience, um, 
that volunteer of that lunch club, they might just appreciate a bit of extra help and training to support those people. So, so that's something where the hospice can maybe cascade some of that knowledge and that and that confidence. So it's an interesting thing, but we all it's on all of us, I think, to, mm. to, to yeah, take a breath and be a little bit more confident. That's Judy Newman uh, from St Elizabeth's Hospice, an absolutely remarkable organisation that I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot of in 2022 with their big hoot activity throughout the centre of Ipswich. If there was one subject that runs through many of our conversations and has done in 2021, it was sadly the impact of COVID. Let's take Lee, Lee Hunt, the Managing Director of Deben Travel, who are based in Woodbridge. Lee has spent his entire career working in the travel industry, and he spoke about the very real problems that it caused for his customers, his team and the business. It's touch and go and lots of travel businesses have gone under over these last 18 months so we are I do count myself lucky to be here and you know thank my team and particularly our customers for uh, for trusting us really um, so so yeah so it's been a, a really tough time lots of sleepless nights um, you know from a personal perspective not being able to pay myself properly now for 18 months so personally it's been very very challenging as well uh, not being able to take advantage, full advantage of the furlough scheme um, and the government support for us as, as, as travel agents has been been very very sparse so it's been really difficult. Goodness, it must have been quite a, a challenging time just going back to the start of the pandemic in 2020 in March no doubt you will have had some of your clients your customers in other parts of the world mm -hmm. were there situations where you had to intervene to to assist them yeah absolutely we had clients in in, in all, all four corners of the earth we had uh, we had people in south africa we had people in china uh, vietnam we had people over in south america um, and it was our responsibility then to speak to them because quite often airlines were simply just cancelling flights without notice and our customers were simply stra left stranded and if i think about particularly our customers that were that were stuck in um, uh, south africa um not only were their flights cancelled they were told it's not likely that flights were going to restart for the best part of six months and you know you can imagine the worry and fear that goes through their mind um so we had to pop them uh, find them alternative accommodation and obviously just keep our eye on the flight situation and get them booked to come home as soon as they could really luckily enough we managed to book them on a repatriation flight the government was running repatriation flights in the early stage and we managed to get them booked on a repatriation flight uh, to come home uh, four weeks later than when they were due to but um but yeah it was really really difficult back then because not only did we have people overseas that we needed to get home but we had people on the way to the airport I, I was calling people actually at Heathrow letting them know that they're, what the situation was telling them to just simply turn around and come back home and all those people also that had already paid the balance of their holidays and were due to travel in the coming weeks and months that so were just thinking actually what's happened have we lost our money and so we were getting hundreds of calls just from worried customers about what what's happening you know what what am I, am I going to lose my money and, and I must be honest at that stage we didn't really know that's Lee Hunt from Deeb and Travel and Lee was just reminding us there about the pressures of dealing with the pandemic but it's been a tough time too for our theatres, among them in Bury St Edmunds, the Theatre Royal Bury St Edmunds to be precise. Its chief executive and artistic director is the remarkable Owen Calvert-Lyons. No disguising uh, Owen's joy of being back with the team and shredding the boards. This was our conversation that we had with Owen. The moment I miss most, which it was so lovely now it's back, is that moment when the lights go down, feel that kind of collective inhale, that little moment where everybody holds their breath for a moment just before the first note uh, of the music kicks in. Uh, and then you kind of feel that collective relaxation of everybody letting themselves go and starting to let themselves be pulled into a story. Now that is really magical. And, and the moment that first came back, you could really feel that ripple through the audience that sort of moment of electricity yeah wonderful uh, and what feedback have you had from uh the audiences that you've had it's been wonderful you know the, the other great change um is people really want to tell us about their experience you know theaters always want to do that they always want to see anybody endlessly got 
um, post-production questionnaires from us will know that we are always interested in what our audience think. And in the past, a reasonable amount of people have told us but now that people are returning, they are desperate to tell us about their experience. We get loads of post-show questionnaires, people going into real detail about what the experience was like for them, how they felt, what it meant to them, particularly if it's their first show back. So audience feedback has been brilliant. Our team read it all. We meet every Tuesday morning and we read through all of the customer feedback from the week before. Uh, and it's wonderful. It's one of the real joys of the job to just hear what somebody's experience has been sitting in one of those seats in our theatre. Do you hear anything from perhaps those who aren't attending at the moment or perhaps the people who you would have almost expected to be there who, for whatever reason, still don't feel that they can join in? We do. Um, and that's really important for us. We're doing lots of research into at the moment because there is, of course, still a section of our audience that hasn't yet returned. Um, and generally, that seems to be falling into two camps. There is the audience who uh, are still feeling worried by COVID and are not ready to return to uh, those sort of public spaces. And that is absolutely understandable. Um, we also have a second uh, reason for people not coming back, which is people's lives have shifted. People have adjusted their life to uh, fit the circumstances they found themselves in. So when they found they were stuck at home, couldn't do all the things they normally did, they looked to things that could happen in their own home. So they took out extra subscriptions to various streaming services. Uh, maybe they got a puppy. Maybe they took a subscription to one of those food boxes that get sent to you uh, every week with recipes. All of those things, which are all a you know, wonderful part of modern life, um, they do start building a life for you, which is much more based at home. Uh, and it becomes much harder to go out and do all the things that you did in the past because of those commitments. Um, and so what we're finding is that for lots of audience, they just haven't yet unpicked those things. So that was Owen Calvert-Lyons on the remarkable work and the changing habits that we are seeing in theatres. So staying with entertainment and to bring this review to a close is another chance to hear the irrepressible Wayne Burns. Wayne has a story to tell and I would encourage you to go back and listen to this conversation in full. But Wayne was once a milkman, once a Punch and Judy entertainer and for the past 30 years manager of Leyston Film Theatre, the oldest purpose-built working cinema in Suffolk. He was first bitten by the celluloid bug when he got the chance to have a go as a youngster working behind the scenes at the cinema in Aubrey. And as he explained, things didn't quite go to plan. So as a young teenager, they had an open day. There was an elderly lady there who, who generally saved the cinema back in the 70s called Letty Gifford. Um, and she greeted us all as we went in. Uh, then the tour progressed to the projection room uh, which was very much a private area. You know, if, if anyone goes into a projection room, it's very, it's a, it's a very sacred space that many projectionists won't just let anyone in. Uh, so we had a tour looking at the old equipment by a, a chap who was called Neville Parry. And then during that, Neville would explain the bits and bobs. He'd run some film. And then he, he chose me and he said, now you can close the curtains. And so there was a row of buttons in front. One was, was open, pause, close. And I got to close those tabs. And as I did, you look at a little porthole and you see the curtains glide towards each other. And I honestly do remember it now. It was the moment that I was bitten by the celluloid bug and I decided I wanted to be a projectionist. So as I left the um, open day at Letty Gifford, it was an, old, an elderly lady. She was sort of bent over a little bit and... Uh, and she said, have you enjoyed yourself? And I said, yeah. I said, I want to be a projectionist. And she said, well, why did you come and spend another night in the box with Neville? Well, of course, that was remarkable. So I cycled down there, spent an evening with Neville, and Nev said, uh, now, when the adverts finish, you can press the button and close the curtains. So I was all ready, of course. Uh, and I knew from experience that Kiora was the last advert. And at the end of Kiora, I merrily pressed the button and uh, Telly Savalas popped up selling Bacardi, I think it was. Um, and so I was, <laughs> I was marched from the projection room, told to bugger off, quite frankly. Um, and I went home in floods of tears. 
And then Mrs. Gifford phoned me up uh, the day after and said, of course, you're too young anyway to be working in the projection room. Uh, but when you're 18, if you still want to follow that thread, um, give me a call. So I did. And, um, and I went down and Neville was still there, of course. Neville was a remarkable man. He, he'd spent his whole life crafting, a proper showman, a proper showman, crafting the art of, of showing 35 millimeter film. And I always remember him opening the door when I was older and just said, oh God, not you again. Um, and we, we had a wonderful relationship. He trained me up, I was trained by the best. And I spent uh, a good few years there. At that time, I, I, my, my summers really worked. I was, I was working as a milkman by day. And I had to start my, my round about midnight because we had the important sizable bee contract. And if they didn't have their milk for breakfast, you can imagine on site, there'd have been a riot. And, and I'd lost my job and we'd lost the contract. So wherever I was at a certain time, I had to stop delivering, get to sizable. So I thought it just makes sense for me to start at midnight and then finish on, on the site, which is what I used to do. Uh, and they were not, shall I say, the most memorable of days. I, I didn't particularly enjoy the job. In fact, I'd go as far as I detested the job. But at 17 years old or 18, whatever I was, the money was good. It was very good. And I was, because I was shifting so much milk, the commission was extremely good as well. Uh, so it, it, it taught me a life lesson that, you know, when, when the money's rolling in like this, uh, sit on it, look after it. And that stood me in good stead. Um, but of course, when I'd finished that, I'd then uh, go home, have a couple of hours kit, down on the beach with a Punch and Judy uh, in the afternoon, couple of shows down on the beach. I had a wonderful bottler, as they call them. We used to go around and collect the, the 20 peas off everyone down there. And then from that point, I would then go to the cinema. If I didn't have another hour's kip, I'd go off to the cinema um, and work there, go home, couple of hours kip, up we get and we start again. I was young, I had the energy, I could do it. Fabulous memories from Wayne Burns, manager at Leiston Film Theatre. So my thanks go out to Wayne and indeed to every guest who has given us their time in 2021. We were indebted and still are to each and every one of them. And another reminder that if you go to our website, suffolkmoney.co.uk, or look for Suffolk Money on your podcast provider, you can listen to every single podcast that we've produced and listen to them in full. So my thanks go to my wonderful production team, which is Joy Day, Sunny Birch and Kevin Birch. And we'll be back with more in the coming weeks. And of course, we always welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions. In fact, if you do that through the podcast provider of your choice, then you will make this more well known and other people in the locality will be able to pick it up and listen as well. So for now, thank you for your support during 2021. Thank you to all of our guests. Thank you for listening. And we hope that we'll see you again soon.